Hey everyone, welcome back to a really exciting episode of Vetfolio Voice. This episode is sponsored by DECRA and features Dr. Marka Cerno here to talk to us about uremic toxins. Now, I'll admit, when I first heard this topic, I had a little moment of panic. I mean, what even are uremic toxins? Did I sleep through that lecture in vet school? How do they even play into managing our chronic kidney disease patients? Well, truthfully, the jury's still out on whether or not I slept through that lecture or we just weren't talking about it at the time, but I was really excited to learn about them in this talk. As Dr. Aserno mentions, there haven't been tons of updates for management of patients with chronic kidney disease over the last several years, but here lately we're seeing more research, more drugs, just more options overall for these patients. And as you'll hear in this talk, the focus on uremic toxins gives us a whole new endpoint the GI tract to focus on when managing these patients. That's all I'll say about it for now because Dr. Aserno does a great job explaining it in the episode, so let me tell you a little bit about him and then we'll go ahead and get into it. Dr. Mark Aserno earned his DVM from Mississippi State University. After an internship in small animal medicine and surgery, he completed an internal medicine residency at Tufts University. Dr. Aserno spent 12 years at Louisiana State University developing one of the most advanced nephrology programs in the world. He's currently a professor at Midwestern University's Veterinary Teaching Hospital, where his clinical and research interests include hypertension, kidney disease, and renal replacement therapies. He also serves as Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs. Dr. Aserno has an MBA from Pace University in New York City. Prior to veterinary medicine, he had a career in business and finance, and he maintains a special interest in personal finance as it relates to veterinary professionals. Dr. Aserno lives in Phoenix with his wife Alyssa and 18 furred, feathered, and scaled friends. In his spare time, Dr. Aserno enjoys scuba diving, climbing, hiking, and exploring the Sonoran Desert. All right, let's go ahead and learn more about uremic toxins. Well, for this conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Aserno, who I'm so happy to be talking to again. We spoke briefly before about uremic toxins, and this was kind of a, a new area for me, not something that I was very familiar with, but I will say since talking to you initially, it certainly changed my conversation with clients around kidney disease and, um, and managing kidney disease. So thank you for joining me again. I'm really looking forward to the chance to talk to you again. Well, thank you for having me back. Absolutely. Well, let's start with kidney diets. You know, as a general practitioner diagnosing kidney disease, this is often a big topic of conversation we get a lot of owners who, you know, maybe they're apprehensive about whether or not their pet will eat the diet or, you know, they try it for a couple of days and they're like, they hate it. It won't work. Um, so what would you say as far as the importance of kidney diets and communication around kidney diets? There's a couple of things. So one is we know from studies that uh, that the use of a kidney disease diet can significantly increase the, both the length and quality of life. There's a small study that's often quoted from the United States, but in the UK, there's a study of 321 cats. Half of them got their usual diet that they've been eating forever, and the other half got any one of a number of chronic kidney disease-formulated diets. So it was really up to the, the, the cat and the owner about what which kidney diet they were going to eat. And what they found was, was that um, those that got the kidney disease, the, the chronic kidney disease diet, lived significantly longer. Right. So we have this evidence that it improves length and quality of life. And 
Part of that is the reduced protein, right? So we're putting less stress on the on the kidneys to deal with these these proteins. Um, some of it's the phosphorus restriction, and we'll talk later about how phosphorus uh, really contributes to kidney disease. Some of it's because these diets are buffered appropriately. So most maintenance diets for cats are acidified. And they've done that in order to help uh, prevent stone formation, but those take a toll over time, especially an animal that's kidneys are not functioning as well as they might be. And so these diets are mostly alkalinized and they're, they're fortified with omega-3 fatty acids. And we know that omega-3 fatty acids decrease inflammation and slow down the course of chronic kidney disease in both human and animal models. And so these diets are really, really um, important for our patients and there's good data to support their use. Absolutely. And sometimes I forget just how many kidney diets there are out there. You know, I think we can say like, oh, you know, here's three options or something like that. And, you know, if the cat won't eat them, then what are we going to do? But there's actually way more options than I always remember. And I think some of these studies have shown pretty good palatability rates with these diets as well. So I always try to talk to owners about that. You know, I, I, it, it's hard to push them when you're, when you're talking about a chronic disease and they're already dealing with so much, but to say, you know, there is a, there, there tends to be good uptake of these diets if we stick with it. Um, and certainly to your point here, a lot of benefit when we can get these patients to eat them. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, there's lots of different diets out there and the palatability has improved dramatically over the past few years. I can remember 20 years ago, some of those kidney diets looked like they were cardboard and they probably yeah. tasted like they were cardboard. I mean, so when owners told me that their pet wouldn't eat it, I, I believe them. But today we have so many options out there in this country. And if you go to other countries, there's other options. But And what I'll do as a strategy is I'll send an owner home with a bunch of different diets, right? And let them try the different diets. Let the cat choose which, or dog choose, even with chronic kidney disease, which diet they want to eat. And what you'll find is, is that, that that they will get used to these diets. And and one of my strategies also is to rotate the diets because they may get tired of one food after a while. But if you continue to rotate them over a period of time, they tend to not get as tired of the flavor of these diets. They're actually quite quite tasty compared to what was available just a decade ago. Absolutely. I think there's some behavior data out there saying that, you know, choice plays a big role in animals being willing to eat a diet. So I think that's a really good idea to offer them a variety of, uh, of different options. And when it comes to the rotating diets, I always think of there's a meme out there somewhere that says, oh, my owner just bought 24 cans of this food. I must never like it again. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because a colleague of mine once pointed out that to humans, food is a form of enrichment, if you will, right? We like a variety. We like this type of food one night and that kind of food the next night. And yet our we expect our, our feline companions to eat the same thing day after day after day. And really changing up diets can be a form of enrichment. It could actually improve quality of life. Absolutely. I think that I think that's a really good point and sometimes can be hard to remember. You know, especially when I think of like derm and stuff like that. But yeah, there's a lot of good options. And like you said, we want variety. Of course they do too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So one thing I always struggle with when it comes to renal diets is when do we start a renal diet? Because of course we know there's a lot of benefits to these patients being on a renal diet, but they are oftentimes a little bit more protein, a lot of bit more protein restricted, which I worry about weight loss and, and loss of muscle mass. Of course, there's early renal diets as well. So it's hard to know what to start and when to start it. Do you have any kind of guidelines for us on that? Yeah. So one of the things I think that's important to remember is that these diets are maybe 
be protein restricted, but they're not calorie restricted. They're actually, some of them have more calories in them than a standard diet. And they, they do that by replacing the protein with other things. Like for example, uh, they may increase the fat content or they may increase some carbohydrates. Um, the long and short of it is, is that the protein has been reduced, but the calorie density hasn't. Um, some of my patients actually gain weight on a kidney diet. And so, you know, I think some of the concern is, misfound, is mis, misunderstood, if you will. So there's actually nice studies out there looking at cats. And what they find is, is that simply restricting the protein doesn't have negative adverse outcomes. One thing also to remember is all of these diets meet the minimum requirement for proteins for cats as we understand them. But again, getting back to your point is when is the benefit of starting a kidney disease diet? And for a long time, we didn't know. Um, and so I would say one thing, um, another internist might say another thing, and neither one of us had real good evidence as to what to base our recommendations on. It was um, what a colleague of mine likes to call, rather than evidence-based medicine, eminence-based medicine, right? So I, I said this, they said that. We, we're starting to get some evidence now that probably one of the biggest indicators that it's time to switch diets is a renal marker called FGF23. Fibroblast growth factor 23 um, is a very, very interesting marker because what happens is as phosphorus starts building up in the body long before we see it, for example, on a chemistry panel, the body reacts by producing this FGF23. And what FGF 23 does, among other things, it has lots of functions, is it tells the kidneys dump phosphorus, right? So we look at the blood work, the phosphorus is normal, but if we looked in the urine, phosphorus would be high. And the reason why that's critical is because as phosphorus is dumped into the glomerulus and into the tubules and goes out into the urine, it actually has damaging effects on the kidney and can speed up, if you will, the, the process by which chronic kidney disease progresses. And so by measuring this marker, this FGF23, we can determine when FGF23 is high, phosphorus therefore in the urine is high, and therefore the kidneys are getting damaged by this excess phosphorus. And so now a simple blood test can be a good indicator as to when we should start a kidney diet. We should probably be starting a kidney diet at least as soon as FGF23 increases because phosphorus in the urine is increasing and that phosphorus in the urine is damaging the kidney. Okay, so this is a blood test because we're we're testing for FGF23 because that is what's telling the kidneys to dump phosphorus into the urine. Correct. You know, so it's a much easier thing to measure than for example if we tried to measure phosphorus actually in the urine. I would imagine if that was an easy test, we probably would be doing it already. Exactly. Yeah, ask your cat to pee in a cup, you know, 3 times a day and go measure it. Um, your, your your cat would probably be much better behaved than my mine would if if I asked him to do the same. So so we talked a little bit earlier about the number of different kidney diets that are out there and the evidence that we have for their uptake with cats, cats being willing to eat them. I don't know that owners are always convinced. So if, we, if we're really getting a lot of pushback on these diets and you know people are saying, my cat will not eat that, can you, what kind of options do you think we should recommend to these owners? And do you have some tips on how to communicate that effectively? Yeah. I mean, when I go into a room, sometimes owners will say, well, my cat won't eat that. Right. And then I know what they're really saying is, is that they don't want to feed it to their cat. And so for those folks that really are resistant to changing up the diet for something else that's in a can, now sometimes some of my owners feed their cats. And when I hear the diets the cats are on, I'm like, can I come over for dinner? Because it sounds better than what I'm going to make tonight. Yeah. So for those owners, um, hooking them up with a nutritionist who will help them formulate a, a home cooked diet 
that meets the requirements of having lower, lower protein, lower phosphorus, high in omega-3 fatty acids, all those good things is an option. Now, for a lot of us, it just, it probably wouldn't be an option. I really don't have time to cook for myself, never mind my cat. So what comes out of the can is just fine. But a lot of owners really are invested and working with a nutritionist is a great way to help those owners find something that they feel comfortable feeding and that their pet will eat. And just for my own curiosity, do you have any feelings on some of the, maybe like the online services for formulating these diets? You know, we hear about balance it and things like that when, you know, if owners are looking for a home-cooked option? Yeah, when owners are looking for a home-cooked option, my, my general recommendation is if there is, you know, you can go online and you can find a boarded nutritionist in your area. Now, they are scarcer than hen's teeth right now. I don't know where they've all gone. I think the universities have probably, you know, sucked them all up or something, but it is hard to find someone. If you can't find someone in your area, I think the next best option is to work with one of these online services. And the thing I, I worry about a little bit is I have found a couple of them where, yes, there are vets, but those vets are not specialists in the area of nutrition, right? So I could give you a recipe for a home-cooked diet for chronic kidney disease, and it might not be any good. But a nutritionist would know exactly what has to go in there in order to be completely balanced. And so the thing I look for is, are there boarded nutritionists and are they actually involved in the process of coming up with the diets? And so there's several of them online and, and they're quite good. I've worked with some of them. And I certainly do recommend that for owners that are willing to go that route. Excellent. Excellent. It's always nice to be able to give lots of options, you know, for, for each individual case. Absolutely. Well, you know, certainly sometimes the problem can be getting them to switch diets and be willing to eat a kidney diet. But sometimes the problem is just these cats, they don't want to eat anything at all. So if we have a patient who, you know, just really has a decreased appetite, maybe they're losing weight. How can we encourage these patients to eat in general and especially eat an appropriate diet that'll benefit their kidneys? Yeah, it's a good question. And for a long time, myself and a lot of my colleagues would use various antiemetics. So things like Serenia or Zofran, and it does in fact stop the vomiting. And we kind of pat, pat ourselves on the back and go, well, we fixed the problem. There's a really nice study out there looking at Serenia. And what they found was is it does decrease vomiting and it does decrease the signs of nausea but the cats don't actually eat anymore and they're not gaining any weight. So there, there is actually an FDA-approved drug right now that's out there. It's uh, Meritaz. So it's a topical, you know, you put it on the, on the cat's ear. It's FDA-approved. Now, I have my own theory about how topical medications work in cats. You know, I always think that they're probably, just, you know, rubbing their ear and then licking their paw and then rubbing their ear and licking their paw. But however it gets into the cat, it does seem to work, whether it's transdermal or otherwise. And the study looking at mirtazapine, you know, the, the study that was used to get FDA approval showed not only did it increase food intake and weight gain, but it stopped vomiting. So this drug, which is really used as it's in the category of antidepressant and weight gain and stops nausea. And so it, it's a really good drug. The one thing I would toss out there is anytime we use a drug in the category of, of antidepressant, we should be careful when we if we go to stop it because we know from studies in animals and in people that abruptly stopping um, these medications can have adverse effects. And so if you're putting a cat on Miritaz and, and you don't like the results or the owner doesn't want to give it anymore, weaning off is kind of a really good process to go through, kind of like you would do for prednisone. 
you know, and the nice thing about a topical is in, in my paradigm, I like pilling cats as much as the next person, but if I can avoid putting something down, you know, a cat's mouth, I think we're both happier, right? My cat's happier, I'm happier, um, everybody's happier. And so it's really nice that we've got this topical medication that we can use that decreases vomiting, that causes weight gain, um, and apparently, uh, you know, is, uh, is quite easy to administer. Absolutely. And I never really thought about it from the antidepressant point of view, but that's a good point to make sure that we're not, you know, kind of going cold turkey off of this. Um, and also thinking that there's some medications that we're not going to be able to give transdermally. Uh, so those oral medications are certainly a lot easier to give in a cat who's willing to eat and not vomiting. Yeah. So I've actually switched. I've No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I've, I've actually switched my strategies now on my chronic kidney disease cats to using topical, you know, Meritaz just because I find good results with it. What about the use of antacids in these cases? I always think of like acidemia and things like that in the cases of renal disease. Any benefits to antacids in these patients? So there is good evidence that that hypergastrinemia occurs because we're not clearing gastrin and so it leads to increased secretion of acid. But my basic feeling is if the animal's eating and eating well and not vomiting, that acid's probably not causing much of a problem. And so I don't use a lot of antacids. I know some of my colleagues do. The problem with antacids is there tends to be a fairly large volume we've got to get down a cat's throat. And again, if I can avoid um, pilling a cat, I just think everybody's happier. You know, cats tend to avoid you when you, they think you're going to pill them or do something unpleasant. And I hate having to have them associate with something unpleasant and mealtime. And so I, I personally don't use a lot of antacids. Okay, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, we definitely have to take that into account of how tolerant our patient is going to be. I had, um, she actually just passed away this year. Uh, one of my patients was 21 years old and had dealt with kidney disease for years and along with other comorbidities. And I said with her, you know, the reason she lived so long is because she was easy to pill. You know, you do anything to this cat. And she was just happy to go about her life. And so she lived for 21 years, but there are plenty of them out there who you can't get a single pill down them no matter what you do. Yep. Yep. Or you think you got it down and then you find it on the floor later. Like, yes. How did that come up? Where did that come from? Like, I know that that went down, but it didn't. They're so sneaky. Yep. Well, switching gears a little bit more, I'm excited to talk to you about uremic toxins because like I said before, this was kind of a new concept for me that I really wasn't familiar with, but actually seems to be playing a really significant role in our patients with kidney disease. So can you tell us a little bit more about uremic toxins and what we should know about them? Yeah. And so we often think about BUN and creatinine and maybe SDMA when we think about uremic toxins and they are. So uremic toxin is anything that builds up in the blood because the kidneys are not functioning as well as they used to. But those three things are not particularly dangerous, right? If, if you were to suddenly take a big tablespoon of creatinine for some reason, you know, it may increase your creatinine in your blood, but you wouldn't get very sick from it and it certainly wouldn't damage your kidneys. What we're finding is after studying kidney disease in people and in animal models is that as chronic kidney disease progresses, there is I don't want to be overdramatic, but there's kind of a collapse of the microbiome of the GI tract. And the microbiome is all of the bacteria, the fungi, and the viruses that normally live in your GI tract. There's, and, and you know we haven't even begun to scratch the surface to, uh, identifying all of those things that live in our GI tract. And, and the GI tract is really important for good health, right? They're, they've They've associated with abnormalities in the GI tract with dementia, for example. They've associated abnormalities in the GI tract with kidney disease. And what they're finding is that people with chronic kidney disease and in animal models, as 
chronic kidney disease progresses, the diversity, if you will, of the microbiome begins to decrease, decrease, and decrease until the bacteria are left are not what we started with. And so what we end up is bacteria in the colon that is producing uremic toxins like indole sulfate and pre, sorry, P-cresol, two toxins that when absorbed in the colon, so what happens is the bacteria that are left in the colon begin producing these uremic toxins. They're absorbed into the bloodstream and they directly damage the kidneys. So these are uremic toxins that are really bad actors. And so one of the reasons why we're getting an increase in these bad uremic toxins is because the good bacteria is getting crowded out. It, the, the diversity of the microbiome is slowly collapsing over time and these bad actors are left. Got it. Got it. That was going to be my question is, you know, are these are these always being produced to some degree, but more so in kidney disease? But it sounds like as we're losing those good bacteria, like you said, these bad actors are left and just kind of allowed to uh, continue unchecked. Correct. And those are two that we've identified. There's probably others out there. It's so fascinating. I like this was when we talked about this as a management strategy of kidney disease. It was like this light bulb came on. And I'm excited because I feel like it gives us a lot of options to talk to owners as far as additional management for kidney disease. So talking about microbiome collapse and these bad actors being left and producing these uremic toxins in high quantities, how would we go about reducing uremic toxins in our patients? Yeah. And it's it's interesting because um, folks have looked at this from two different angles. So there are folks that are looking at, can we somehow replenish, if you will, the microbiome of the GI tract? And so there's some studies out there looking at this both in people, and there's a study out there in dogs, for example, where they attempted to restore, if you will, the microbiome. And they've had some success with that. And then there's other folks that are looking at this and going, well, you know, we probably can never restore the microbiome back to what it was, right? And so we've got these bad actors producing these, these uremic toxins, what else can we do? And so what they've come up with is they've come up with some supplements that, for example, will bind up these uremic toxins before they can do their damage, before they get absorbed into the bloodstream, and then they go out with the feces. And so it's something you mix in with the food, the cat eats it, uh, they're, ter they're kind of inert, so they, apparently they don't interfere with the, the texture of the food or the taste of the food. And then it gets um, it absorbs the uremic toxins in the GI tract that can't get absorbed in the colon and out it goes with the feces. And, you know, other people have looked at it a third way, if you will. Some people have said, well, what if we manage to decrease transit time and give the, the feces less time to sit in the colon? If you look at a normal cat, a normal cat is going to defecate two to three times a day. And I can testify after cleaning a litter box for umpteen years that that is absolutely true. A cat with uremic, uh, with, with, with chronic kidney disease is only going to defecate about once every other day. So feces is sitting in the colon a lot longer. There's a lot longer time for that is uremic toxins to get absorbed into the bloodstream, you know, could we affect this by just decreasing transit time, getting restoring the normal defecation? Um, now, if we could, you know, make sure our patients were well hydrated, that might help. If we restore the microbiome, that might help. But some folks have looked at, for example, there's a, a nice study done in rats where they um, use lactulose. And by decreasing the transit time, by getting them back on a normal schedule of defecation, um, renal disease slowed, the absorption of these uremic toxins decreased, um, and, um, 
and essentially the, these animals, when you looked at their kidneys, were, were significantly less disease than the animals that didn't get lactulose. So they went back to defecating normally. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it may not be just lactulose. It probably is anything that decreases transit time and moves feces through the colon quicker. So there's less time for those uremic toxins to be absorbed. And so really now we've got three strategies to work with. So the three strategies to recap being correcting the microbiome. So probably something along the lines of probiotic. Correct. Moving the ingesta through the GI tract faster, decreasing transit time. Correct. So lactulose and then maybe like a fiber supplement or something along those lines. Yep, absolutely. And then the third one being this absorbent that we would give to bind up the toxins as they moved through or as they were produced in the colon so that they were passed instead of absorbed into the bloodstream. That is correct. Yeah. And that, those are the three strategies that, that we can use to decrease the absorption of, the, of these bad actors, if you will. And this is where I think this is so exciting because, of course, cats it makes sense that they're not defecating as often, which I think I've always attributed to dehydration and, you know, just these, these feces being more dried out, they're harder to pass. They're not moving as quickly. The, the gut's probably not moving as well due to, you know, less than stellar hydration, but to say, Hey, there's actually a lot more involved in the GI tract, because like you said, we're just scratching the surface on the GI tract being involved in so many different things it gives us a whole different area to kind of target to help manage our kidney disease patients aside from, you know, just trying to keep them hydrated and on a kidney diet and, and nurse them along the best we can that way. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's opened up a whole avenue of treatment that we didn't even know was there. It was right under our nose the whole time and we just didn't even understand it. It's so exciting just to, like you said, it's, it's, it's wide open here of here's a whole nother area that you can target. And I think it's going to be really exciting in the future to find out other roles that the GI tract is playing and what we can target to come up with more effective treatment plans. Yeah. And what other diseases are really being uh, potentiated by the GI tract, right? By stuff in our GI tract, the stuff that lives there. So when we talk about feeding and something that'll absorb these uremic toxins on the way out, what kind of product are we looking at? Yeah, so there's a product on the market right now called Porous One, which is a supplement. It comes in these little pouches. You add it to the food. It doesn't, from what I gather, it doesn't really change the texture or the flavor of the food. Goes into the GI tract and it just kind of gets carried along. And as it, as these toxins are produced, these spheres they look like itty bitty, you know, spheres of uh, carbon of some sort, with this property where they just kind of bind up these toxins. And there's there's at least that I know of three good university studies that are going on right now looking at how this decreases these toxins in patients. And I, I have a lot of hope that this is going to turn out to be something big because it's something that's easy to use. It's it's kind of inert. It doesn't even get absorbed. You know, my usual paradigm, I always joke with, with my students that if it doesn't have side effects, that drug's not working, right? But here's something that's not even getting absorbed. So it won't have any side effects. It's absorbing these toxins. It's carrying them out. And so I, I think it's it's a real breakthrough in, in helping treat chronic kidney disease patients now that we have this new knowledge about the GI tract. And that's exciting in and of itself to potentially, you know, have something really big that could benefit our kidney patients in the form of a dietary supplement. Like you said, not something that's having side effects. Correct. Yeah. It makes me think of like the Febreze commercial where it's like it absorbs the odors and then it like disperses <laughs> Except for Febreze has an odor. This doesn't have any odor. There we go. Even better. Even better. No odor. <laughs> better than Febreze. Okay. So as we wrap up here, 
really excited. We have multiple areas that we can target for our kidney patients to, to really provide a lot of benefit. Let's talk about diagnosis for our kidney patients and, and more specifically staging. So I understand that iris guidelines were recently updated. Can you elaborate on um, maybe what some of the updates were? I understand that some of our endpoints are maybe a little bit more aggressive than they used to be and what we should know about just about the updates and, and how and when to implement treatment for our patients. The iris scoring system is something that's really, really helpful for clinicians and for academicians because what it does is it categorizes our chronic kidney disease patients into groups, right? And so, for example, if someone calls me and says that they have a stage two non-proteinuric, non-hypertensive patient, immediately in my mind, I know exactly what they're talking about, right? So I'm talking about something, if, it, if it's a cat with a creatinine of 1.6 to 2.8, they're not hypertensive, there's no protein in the urine. And so it gives us a common nomenclature to talk about cases, but it's more important than that because it allows us to follow the progression better of our patients. We can see when they're going from stage two to stage three, for example, it allows specific recommendations to be made based on the staging. But I find where people sometimes stumble up a little bit is if you look at stage one, they talk about, for example, a cat having a creatinine of 1.6, which on a lot of laboratories would be completely normal. And so I'm, I'm finding that people are getting confused about how to use it. And the thing to remember is it's a staging system. It's not a diagnostic system. And so Iris recently released some guidelines for the diagnosis of these early stage one, stage two chronic kidney disease patients. And so we shouldn't use the staging system to make a diagnosis. We should use the diagnostic system. So they talk about, you know, if, if creatinine or STMA has been increasing over time, but still in normal range, that would be an indication we have chronic kidney disease. Or they talk about, you know, abnormal imaging, the kidneys being too small. But, you know, I know when I go to reach into a cat's abdomen with my fingers, right? And I always take three fingers and I go jab them in. And I know a couple of things are going to happen. One is I could get bitten, in which case I'm going to feel teeth. But if I don't feel the teeth, there's only two things I should feel in there. One of them is going to be the kidneys and there might be some colon material. So if I feel the kidneys and they're not three fingers wide, I know that there's something wrong, right? This could be early chronic kidney disease. And so it's worth pursuing further. Um, if we have persistent uh, proteinuria, that's a sign of chronic kidney disease. And finally, if we have continuously dilute urine in a patient with BUN and creatinine or SDMA that are at the high end of the normal range, that's highly suggestive of chronic kidney disease also. And so the nice thing is they've come out and they clarified stage one. Stage one you know, if we use that 1.6, half the cats in the country would be chronic kidney disease diagnosed now. But the fact of the matter is it's a staging system and they've also now released the diagnostic system, if you will, to go along with that stage one. So obviously not every cat is a stage one chronic kidney disease patient, but they've given us some guidelines on how to actually diagnose those stage ones. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's hugely helpful to say, you know, when do I intervene and when do I monitor and, and when should I communicate this with the owner? One of the important things of, of, of using such a staging system is that it allows specific guidelines at specific disease stages to be produced. And so we're starting to see literature come out where they're specifically looking at, for example, only stage two or only stage three kidney disease and what improved quality and quantity of life and what didn't. And so that's part of the reason why using a staging system is so important. Absolutely. I, I love seeing the the new products, the new data, everything that we're learning. It seems like it's expanding really rapidly. 
Um, whereas I, I feel like when I first graduated, we were using a lot of human drugs off-label in animals because that was what we had because that was the research that was going to get funded. And now we're seeing so many veterinary-specific studies, veterinary-specific drugs, and it's, it's really exciting because it just gives us so many more options for ways to treat our patients. Absolutely. You know, the uh, FDA just approved the first drug for feline anemias, for, for example. Right. So now we have our own drug for treating a condition with chronic kidney disease, which is really kind of neat. Yes. Yes. When you get things and you're like, oh, my gosh, I can use this on label and there are instructions and safety studies and all of these things. It's so exciting. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. You know, it's funny. I recently spoke at a meeting and I started it with, I'm so glad that we're talking about chronic kidney disease because for about the past 10 years, it's been a little bit of a snooze fest. And then all of a sudden in the last two years, all this great stuff has happened. And so we have all these new ways to help treat our chronic kidney disease patients. Absolutely. And I get also get very excited about these kidney developments. Giving a shout out to my mentor before I went to vet school, Dr. Karsten Bant, who told us in our lecture that the abdomen was, we were I think it was a lecture on acute abdomen. And he said, the abdomen is the most important part of the body because it houses the kidneys and the kidneys exactly. never fail. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's why the heart gives it most of its blood, right? Where does most of it go? The kidneys, because it knows it's the most important organ. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Dr. Aserno, always so much fun to talk to you. I always learn so much and I can't wait to get this episode out there for people to listen to it and know that there's, you know, another endpoint that we can tackle when it comes to treating our kidneys disease cats. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, being invited back. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in. I hope you're as excited as I am to have additional therapies and options for these CKD kitties. A big thank you to DECRA for making this episode possible. And of course, thank you to Dr. Aserno for all of the fantastic information. I've said it before, guys. I'll say it again. I have no idea how algorithms work. But if you enjoyed this talk, I've been told that leaving a five-star review will make it more visible to other veterinary professionals so they can have access to this great information. So if you have a minute, please leave us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.